Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 84. So looking at Psalm 84 as we continue to look at different Psalms this summer. And as we, I know whenever you hear that number 84, you may not, some of you may immediately know exactly which Psalm it is and, 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 and can call to mind verses or sections of it or maybe the whole Psalm. Um, but if, if Psalm 84, just hearing that chapter does not uh, ring a bell for you, my guess is as we read it together, you'll, oh, okay, I'm familiar with this. I'm familiar with um, you know, praise song or praise songs that have been based on this, on this psalm. And so it, it is a, it's a psalm of, of longing, of longing for God. It's a psalm of relying on God's strength and the strength that only He can provide and the strength that He does provide for His people. It, it's a psalm of, of, of trust and trusting in God and, and believing that, that He bestows favor and honor on His people and as the psalmist promises towards the end, no good thing does God withhold from his faithful people. So simply put, this psalm, Psalm 84, is a psalm of, of hope in God and his, in his character and his attributes, his promises, and his faithfulness to those promises, which are all given to his people in love and for their good. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about Psalm 84, it's one of the choicest of the collection of psalms. If the 23rd Psalm be the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th the most deeply experimental, the 51st the most plaintive, this is one of the most sweet of the Psalms of peace. And I think you'll agree as we work through it that indeed Psalm 84 is, is a very sweet Psalm. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Psalm 84. To the choir master... According to the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Their early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. So before we talk about the, the three headings today, I want to think a little bit about the outline of this psalm. You may notice that there are two selahs in Psalm 84, one after verse 4, one after verse 8. And, and that term is, uh, signals a pause or an interlude or a new section in the psalm. So Psalm 84 has three sections right, set apart by the two selahs. And so these three sections form our three headings. And each of the three sections also has a, a, a beatitude or a statement of blessing. 
And so those are actually the, the three headings. So blessed are those who dwell in God's house or find rest in God's house. That's verses one to four. Blessed are those whose strength is in God. That's verses five to eight. And blessed are those who trust in God. That's verses nine to 12. And so before we even get into the first blessed are those, notice the, the title. I don't want to go past it too quickly because the title is in the original Hebrew text. And it says, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, we don't know the specific circumstances um, behind the writing of Psalm 84, but we do learn some things from this title. One, that we see that this psalm is meant uh, to be sung in corporate worship, right? It's to the choir master. And the Giddeth is a, a musical or liturgical term. Then we also learn about these, the, those who it's attributed to, the sons of Korah. There are 12 psalms in the Psalter ascribed to the sons of Korah. And if you're not familiar with who Korah was, you can read about him in the Old Testament book of Numbers, Numbers 16, that he leads an unsuccessful rebellion against Moses and Aaron. So that's in Numbers 16. That's the historical account. I think it's the first 40 verses of Numbers 16. But then there's a summary of Korah's failed rebellion recorded in Numbers 26, verses 9 to 11. Here's the summary. These are the Dathan and Abiram, chosen from the congregation, who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. When they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. So on the one hand, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's a warning because there's this, this sinful rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and, and, and the Lord responds in judgment. But you notice it's a warning, but the sons of Korah did not got, die, that God extended grace to the sons of Korah, and all of them did not die, and God would even eventually give them, as one of the Levitical families, a role to play in the corporate worship in the temple. Again, we have 12 psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah because part of the sons of Korah became singers and musicians in the temple, and, and the other part of the sons of Korah served as doorkeepers, gatekeepers, guardians in the temple. And so we'll come back to that a little bit later because the psalm mentions that later, but, but, but at the beginning of Psalm 84, here in this title, don't miss how the mention of the sons of Korah is a reminder of and a pointer towards God's grace. God's grace even for rebels. And praise God that God still extends amazing grace that we sung about earlier in this service to rebels even today. Amen. Now the first heading, blessed are those who dwell in God's house. And this first section is verses 1 to 4. Looking at verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place. Now lovely does not simply mean that the that the sanctuary in the temple was beautiful. It doesn't simply mean that the architecture was aesthetically pleasing, although it was. Here, lovely uh, quite literally means beloved or, or much loved. So what the psalmist is saying is much loved is God's dwelling place. Why? Why is it much loved? Why is it beloved? Well, because God is there. That's why the people love it. As one commentator put it, what a dearly loved place is your dwelling place, God. I cannot think of anywhere I would rather be. Now think about it. I cannot think of anywhere I'd rather be. 
So I, I don't want to ask you, okay, is there any place you'd rather be right now? But, but I'd rather phrase it as, what, what is your favorite place in all the world? What's your favorite place? You know, I know for some people, it's, you know, it's on a mountain, it's, it's on a beach, it's in, it's, it's in the woods, it's on a river, it's on a lake, maybe it's at a family member's house, it's at whatever that, 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 famous, that, that favorite, you know, regular family vacation spot is, maybe it's at that, that restaurant that, that, that's your family's place where you, you gather and, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's, at, it's in your home, but Think about where, where is that place, your favorite place in the world. The psalmist here in verse 1 declares that the sanctuary is that place for him, that there's no other place he'd rather be. So look again at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. You have that title for God, Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. It appears, I think, four or five times in in Psalm 84 over and over and over again. So it's a title for God that's frequently used of God throughout the Old Testament. And what it does is it points to God as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, that he is the sovereign God over all the earth, over all the armies on the earth and in heaven above. And so friends, don't miss that this, this is who your God is. This is the God to whom you pray. So on the one hand, this, that your God calls you to worship, invites you to, to enter into his sanctuary and to worship him. And on the other hand, he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all the armies of, of heaven and on earth. He's that powerful. He's that great. And it's this God who hears and answers your prayers. It's this God who, who loves you, who knows you by name. And that's why the psalmist longs to be in the place where this God, where his God dwells. So look at verse 2. My soul, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And so here the psalmist expresses an intense desire to, to be back in the courts of the Lord. So apparently for some reason he's been temporarily uh, prevented from being there but we can see he longs to be there he longs to be there with all that he is with the depths of his soul my soul all that he is longs even faints to be there right his heart his his inner being and his flesh his his external body they long they cry out to be in the courts of the lord's temple singing for joy as they praise god with the rest of god's people and I don't know if, you, if you've ever had that experience in your life where you, you, you just longed. You longed for the next opportunity to gather with God's people and to worship God. You couldn't wait for the next, that next Sunday to come around. You couldn't wait for that next opportunity. I, I know that's not always the, the, the steady state that we live in and the constant desire of our hearts. But when it's there, it's both, it's both incredibly intense and it's an incredibly sweet desire, and that's what the psalmist is describing, expressing. Then look at verses 3 and 4. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now, the courts of the temple were open-aired, so birds could, and they did nest in the eaves of the temple, make a home there. 
And the word home and house show up uh, twice, one in verse 3, one in verse 4. Notice that, home in verse 3, house in verse 4. I think the point that the psalmist is making is that there in the house of the Lord, even the sparrows and the swallows find a home. Even the, the sparrows and the swallows find a nest. You see, the point is, if, if the sparrows and the swallows are welcome there, if the sparrows and the swallows can find a home there, then how much more can the psalmist, how much more can the people of God, how much more than you can you find a home there? How much more can you and should you and must you have confidence and assurance that God will provide a home for you? Or put another way, how much more confidence can you and should you have, ought you to have, that, that you're welcomed and wanted there by your God? You see, in the Bible, sparrows are really symbols for, for that which is almost worthless. They're worth so little. And, and Jesus compares you know, sparrows that are worth so little, how they matter to God, Therefore, we ought to have so much more confidence in how much we matter to God. Like, for example, in Matthew 10, 29, Jesus asks, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So sparrows are sort of a, they're not worthless, but they're sort of a symbol for that which is almost worthless. And then the, the psalmist mentions swallows, and James Montgomery Boyce says that swallows are a symbol for, for restlessness. So listen to how he explains it, the late preacher. He says, just as the sparrow is a symbol of worthlessness, so is a swallow the Bible symbol of restlessness. It's a bird that's always in the air, winging its way from point to point, from the earliest glimmer of dawn to after sunset, right? Never at rest never at peace. And yet the psalmist says that the swallows find rest. They, they make their nests there in, in the courts of the Lord. And so thinking about it this way, about the, the swallows being symbols of restlessness, that it calls to mind a quote that St. Augustine uh, wrote in his book, Confessions. He says, you have formed us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And the Welsh preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, expands this some. He says, man by nature, man without God is restless. Where can we find peace? Where can we find tranquility? Where can we find rest and peace of mind and of heart and of spirit? Where can we find the point where all is well and nothing troubles? Where is it? Man cannot find it. He is restless. Why? Man, though he does not know it, was made by God, and he was made in such a way that he's dependent upon God. There is the highest thing in man which can only be satisfied by God. Nothing else can satisfy it. I want you to think about that. Have, have you ever felt that? Have you ever realized that there, no, matter, no matter what I achieve, no matter what I accomplish, no matter what I acquire, Apart from God, it's never, ever, ever going to be enough. I mean, can you relate to that desire for rest and peace and satisfaction and finally being at home, being at rest? 
My guess is we all know what that's like. We all know what it feels like. We can relate to that longing. So the other question is, well, what are you looking to, to give you rest? No matter what it promises, sin will never, ever give you that rest. It never, ever will. No amount of career success and achievement, as great as it is, will ever give you that rest. You know, there'll always be more work to do. There'll always be more projects to do. Academic achievement. Okay, my, some of my kids, are, my kids are in this service. Academic achievement's great. I, we want lots of academic But no amount of academic, uh, academic achievement will ever give you this rest. You know, buying all the new stuff you can afford to buy will never give you this rest. Experiencing all the new experiences will never, ever give you this rest. The, the greatest vacation in the world will never ultimately give you this rest. You know, my guess is that many of us can raise our hands and, and admit that there are multiple times we felt like we need a vacation from the vacation we just took, right? That the vacation will not give you this rest. So the psalmist and Augustine and Martin Lloyd-Jones were right that, yes, God has formed us for himself, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in God. And today, for where we are in the history of redemption, we know that finding rest in God means finding rest in God through Jesus Christ. Resting in his finished work of redemption on our behalf. And I love the way that our second membership vow highlights this. Resting in Christ. The, the membership vow asks, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Now, and that, that's important, to know that, to believe it, to trust it, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that He is the one and only Savior of sinners. But I love the way that the vow goes on to flesh this out. And do you receive and rest? Rest upon Him alone. Rest upon His finished work alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. See, resting upon Christ alone for salvation, that's true rest. It's the rest for which you were made. And you, I, we, we will be restless until or unless we come to know Christ, this Christ, as Savior and Lord, and rest upon his finished work on our behalf. So blessed are those who dwell and who rest in God's house. The second heading, blessed are those whose strength is in God. Look, look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. I, I love verse 5. There's a, um, a couple of layers to it. See, in verse 5, the psalmist seems to focus his attention on a, a journey, a pilgrimage of sorts from wherever he is, right, temporarily separated from the courts of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem. He's setting his heart on this pilgrimage back to the temple, and he knows that he must make this journey and he must make it, he can only make it, in the strength that God provides. That he's utterly dependent upon God every step of the way. And yet we see this, this, the second half of it, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And commentators go back and forth and they offer different interpretations of what this means. What I find most compelling and I think makes the most sense is that the psalmist simply can't stop thinking about this journey. He can't stop thinking about being back in the temple courts, back in the sanctuary to worship God along with his people. 
So as, as, as is often the case, the, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and his heart is set on this journey. Commentator Alan Ross says, to say the highways are in their hearts is to say that the trip was on their mind. They were intent on making the journey. The word hearts referring to their desire and decision to go. So the psalmist's heart is set on the journey. He longs to complete this journey. He longs to experience this, this intimacy with his God. But we're going to see that the journey is not an easy one. There's going to be trials and tribulations. It's going to be a, a difficult journey. So look at verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. See, verse 6 is both a sobering verse and it's also a very, very encouraging verse, a verse with a great promise. So first, think about the sobering aspect of it. See, we don't know where the Valley of Baca is or was. We don't even know if it's a real place or not. And we don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. It seems to be a real place here in the psalm, but what we know is that the word Baca appears to be linked to the Hebrew word for weeping or sadness, you know, weeping and sadness. And then we also see, though, that, that it's clear from verse 6 in the context that the Valley of Baca, not only is it a place of weeping and sadness, but it's a place, it's a dry place. And, and in the Middle East, a dry place is going to be a lifeless place. It's going to be a desert. And this sad, weeping, dry, lifeless place, notice it's also, it's an unavoidable place. Right, so it's not a place that anyone would choose to go. It's certainly not the place that the psalmist would choose to go, but he has to go through there to get to where he wants to be, to get to his heart's desire, which is this intimacy, this intimate place with God, to be in the courts of the Lord. And so, but if you look again at verse 6, you see that God moves and works as his people pass through the sad, weeping, dry, and lifeless valley of Baca, and as they pass through, God works and he moves. And he transforms that place of sadness and weeping and dryness and lifelessness into a place of springs, pools of water, a life-giving place. You see that? You know, and already through our study in the Psalms this summer, we've seen that the, the, the people of God should never ever be surprised when we go through valleys like this hard times like this. Now, we are often surprised. It almost always catches us off guard, but the Bible tells us over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament that it should never, ever catch us off guard. We should never be surprised when we encounter trials and difficulties in this life. Now, those, these things are hard. They're often quite painful. What God's Word tells us, and I think even what Psalm 84 verse 6 tells us, is that these difficult times are essential for our spiritual growth. And spiritual maturity. You know, a, a few weeks back, we looked at Psalm 66, and there's a section there that reminds me of, of Psalm 84, verse 6. In Psalm 66, verses 10 to 12, we read, For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. And that sounds like the Valley of Baca. It's a place of sadness and weeping and, and pain and hard times. It's dryness, not where we want to be, a time of trial and testing. But then, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. That's when, when the rains come and God makes it a place of springs and covers it with pools. 
See, the psalmist says that God brought his people and he brings his people through a variety of tests and trials for the purpose of refining us and purifying our faith in much the same way that silver and gold are refined and purified. That God uses trials in the lives of his people to mature us. He always has and he still does it today. So dear Christian, your good and loving, faithful God, powerful God, will never leave you in, in, in a valley like this just so that you can be stuck in a place of dryness and sadness. That he's all, he always has a purpose for it. And he's using these trials, whether it's a momentary trial, whether it's going to be one that lasts for an extended season or maybe even for the rest of your life, to, to grow you and to mature you. If you didn't come to know him, better to love him more. So whenever you find yourself in one of these valleys, never doubt God's love for you. Never ever doubt his commitment, his faithfulness to you. Right, the, the valley of Baca was a dry place, a desert place, but, but our God has provided water in the driest wildernesses for his people before. And he's still that same God. He's that same God for you and me today. This is the God who hears and answers your prayers. And so don't forget that. And then listen to what we read next. Verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Right? So blessed are those who dwell and who rest in God's house. Blessed are those whose strength is in God. We see here that they go from strength to strength, even through the driest and saddest of valleys. But you see this promise. Each one appears before God in Zion. It's an amazing promise that, dear Christian, that you're going to finish this journey, that you will make it all the way home, that your God and Christ, your good shepherd, will bring you and all of God's people all of the way home. So, The third heading, blessed are those who trust in God, looking at verses 9 to 12, beginning with verse 9, behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. So here the psalmist reference to our shield is most likely a reference to the king, to the one who is the anointed one. See, the psalmist is trusting that God will bless and provide for his people and show favor to, to God's anointed one. And you may know this, but in Hebrew, the anointed one is literally the, the Messiah. Think about that. Y years later, the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, on the road to Emmaus, would talk to his disciples about how all the Old Testament scriptures point forward to him. All, all that the Old Testament scriptures say about him must be fulfilled in him. Listen to how he puts it there on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so it's, 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 it is good and right for us to read Psalm 84 and, and, and to think about Christ and how this psalm points us forward to Christ. Pastor Richard Phillips helps us here. He says, the word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. Reading this, the Christian cannot help but think of Jesus Christ. We pray confidently in his name. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And we know that whatever our circumstances, we are not alone. Jesus declares, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ is the guarantee of God's covenant favor to us and the good shepherd of his flock. 
Therefore, friends, those of us who trust in Christ today, we can wholeheartedly agree with Psalm 84 and what it says in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So think about what this verse means, that a day near God, a day with God, is better than a thousand days doing anything else without God. If you remember from earlier in the sermon, the sons of Korah, to those, those who the Psalms attributed, some of them were literal doorkeepers in the house of God. So if you think about what this psalm means, that yes, on the one hand, at some level, it means that even a lowly position, a lowly station in life with God is better than luxury without God. A lowly station, lowly position with God is better than, than, than all the money in the world, but, but in our sin, right? Sin never makes things better. It never takes us where we want to go. But more than that, I think verse 10 means that the psalmist would rather be in his place of service, guarding the door that's been entrusted to him. In his place, he'd rather be in his place of service in God's kingdom, using his God-given gifts, than he would rather be doing anything else anywhere else. And why? Well, look at verse 11 and 12. And here we find the, the crescendo of encouragement and hope here. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. See, why trust God? Because better is one day in his courts than a thousand anywhere else. Why trust God? He is, he is our son. He's the source of life and breath and, and joy. Why trust him? He's our shield. He's the one who protects us and guards us and watches over our, our goings out and our comings in. Why trust God? Because he's promised us that no good thing does he withhold from his faithful people. No good thing does he withhold. And reading that, that verse, I can't help but think of what Paul writes in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That if God has given his son to take on flesh and to live and to suffer and to bleed and to die to save sinners like us, why would we ever, ever question or doubt that he would withhold any other good thing from us? Why would we ever think that God was being stingy towards us? Right? It's no small thing, no small sacrifice for God to send Christ to live and die for us. So Paul is making the argument here, from the greater to the lesser, we already have the greatest gift. Why would we ever, ever doubt that God's going to give us anything and everything else that we need? The, the, the analogy, illustration I've used, although I don't feel like it hit well in the first service, and so I don't know. It, it could have been me, it could have been them. We'll see how this goes. But th this is one I've used with you before. Uh, maybe I didn't think of a better one, but I, I, think, I think it's analogous, understanding Romans 8.32, understanding what we see in Psalm 84 about no good thing does God withhold from his people, is the idea of a young man getting down on his knee before the woman that he loves, pull, reaching his hand into his pocket, pulling out a ring, open the palm of his hand, and, and, and the woman looks at that ring, and it, it, it is the diamond of her, it's a diamond ring of her dreams. She grabs it, she puts it on her finger, it fits perfectly. Then all she could think to ask is, okay, yeah, but, but, but thanks, but, but where's the box? Right? That would be absurd, right, to, to think that way. But so many of us, 
Don't we think that way? Okay, yes, 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 yes. Yes, God so loved the world that he sent his one only son uh, so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But is God really going to care about my prayers? I mean, God loved me so much through all of that to save me, to wash away my sin, to credit me with Christ's righteousness. But then we question and doubt that God cares about the lesser details and the lesser issues and problems in our lives. Theologian John Stott says, in giving his son, God gave everything. The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. Or as Psalm 84 puts it, no good thing does God withhold from his faithful people. Dear Christian, remind yourself of this the next time you wonder if God is really for you. If God is really generous towards you. When you're questioning whether he really does love you. Whenever you begin to wonder and doubt whether he's just too busy to be, to be bothered by you. You think, surely he's not hearing these prayers. Remember this. Remember these truths. Remember these precious promises in Psalm 84. Remember promises that we read about in verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. You matter more to God than the sparrows and the swallows. Never ever doubt that you are wanted and welcomed by your God. Remember what we read about in Psalm 84, verses 6 and 7. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion that you, dear Christian, will finish. Because your faithful God, Christ your good shepherd, will bring all of his people all of the way home. And don't forget to have the psalm ends. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blesses the one who trusts in you. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these precious promises. How lovely is your dwelling place. We're so thankful that we're welcomed that we're wanted. We're so very thankful that we have the assurance that you will bring all of your people all the way home. Lord, help us to trust even when it's hard to believe that there is no good thing that you withhold from your people. Lord, help us to believe this. In giving Christ, you, you did give us everything. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, our redemption in Christ, resting in him, truly is the guarantee of your continuing, unfailing generosity towards us. And we see that here in this table. It reminds us of how you have provided for us in Christ, his life, death, giving of his body and of his blood, it also reminds us of how Jesus, you continue to provide for us as Christ rules and reigns over us, as he intercedes for us, as he strengthens us and nourishes us, and also assures us and promises us that he will come again. As we've said multiple times this morning, he will bring us all the way home to be with you, our triune God, and all your people for all eternity. 
Lord, help us remember these things. We prepare our hearts to come to this table. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.